The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Hello and welcome to the Do Gooder podcast. I want to start off by welcoming all our new subscribers. We had a huge jump in listeners last week, so thank you all for taking the time to listen. Today's episode is all about good intentions, specifically the commodification of good intentions. I'm super excited to get into this conversation with our guest, Kent Goldsworthy. Since 2011, Kent has taught into the Masters of International Development and the Bachelor of International Studies programs within the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Kent is specifically interested in the political sociology of international development actors and considers issues concerning the commodification of good intentions and the concept of the humanitarian disposition as an attribute of market-driven globalization. Most recently, Kent has been working on how pedagogy in programs like international studies and international development influence student perceptions and engagement with world affairs and the other. Prior to teaching and research, Kent worked for many years at the executive level in international education and management in Australia, North America, Europe and Asia. Kent is also the host of the weekly radio program and podcast, Radio Therapy. Welcome, Kent. Oh, great to be with you, Lee. Kent, I'm going to jump right in here because I know you've done an awful lot of thinking about this topic and you're very interested in understanding what motivates people to do good. So what does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I think there's a, there's a couple of aspects of it uh, for me personally. One is some kind of definition of what good is that may be as simple as do no harm, <laughs> but then it's probably uh, something more along the lines of understanding what my own ethics and values are and using those ethics and values to guide decisions we make. It's not necessarily as grand as being pious or something like that, but it, it's about making sure that at the end of any given day, I feel like I've been true to myself and honest with myself. And I think if I can do that, I can at least claim I've done good on that level. My good may not always align with somebody else's definition of good, but that can make things interesting as well. And so how do you feel that you express doing good in your day-to-day life? Being self-conscious really helps, okay? This, this conscious reflexivity. A thinker and activist by the name of Paulo Freire had this idea of conscientization. And really what that means is being reflexive and being self-conscious in such a way as to not necessarily disable yourself because of your um, self-awareness, but to actually know yourself. You know, that's even the old Aristotelian um, point of view, knowing yourself. And if you do know yourself, then you can, you know, use that as your compass to move through the day. I want to start with something called wicked problems. Can you tell us what a wicked problem actually is? Yeah, my understanding of a wicked problem is one that can really trip us up if we're not careful. When we are identifying a wicked problem, what we're seeing is a, uh, an issue that needs addressing and something that needs an active, not a passive response. But we also recognise that probably that response, even if it solves the problem we're identifying, is going to create another problem. And on the one hand, that might lead us to inaction because we think, what's the good of doing this if it's just going to cause more problems? On the other hand, I think accepting that there's no silver bullet to 
pretty much anything, mm. um, certainly any of the big world issues like global poverty or, or various forms of justice issues and so on. I think if we can live with the understanding that many problems are wicked, that can give us some kind of comfort to move forward. And just through collaboration and cooperation, maybe we can mitigate the consequences of solving any kind of problem. So on the consequences then, you wrote something and it said, it can seem that when we are challenged by wicked problems in our efforts to do something as grand as make the world a better place, we risk becoming paralyzed, throwing up our hands and giving in. Even going back to this question of doing good, if part of doing good is to do no harm, and if part of the concept of wicked problems is, yeah, you're probably going to have some kind of negative consequence by trying to do some other kind of good, then you could be paralysed. I think a world in which we didn't accept that there's complexity and nuance and um, competing agendas and interest, even if those competing agendas are, are positive, then I think if we don't accept that, then we will be paralysed. We've really just got to find a way to move beyond that. So can you give us a real-world example of a wicked problem? Uh, well, first thing I would say is just about every public policy issue is really a wicked problem. Right. So whenever we're deciding to spend finite resources, like taxpayers' money, spending taxpayers' money on one response means that that money is not being spent somewhere else on competing issues. In the Australian context at the moment, a wicked problem might be thought of as something like um, the asylum seeker debate, where uh, on one hand, there's an argument that we've got to stop the deaths, quote unquote, deaths at sea. And so those with that point of view are saying, these vulnerable people who are being ripped off by human traffickers, effectively, in their language, are putting people on risky, leaky boats, and they're dying on their way to Australia. And so when you frame the policy like that, you want to deter people from getting on the boat in the first place. The Australian policy response has been to be really aggressively resistant to anybody coming. You know, um, the Australian government's done campaigns around um, Southeast Asia saying, you will not be led into Australia if you arrive by boat and simultaneously have set up offshore detention. Mm. Um, so that's proven, or at least as far as we know, to have stopped the boats, quote-unquote. Well, the wicked problem is it's actually started to traumatise innocent people. So by putting people into detention centres for not committing any crime whatsoever and putting them in there for a long, long time in horrible, horrible situations, and this includes children, we are actually dealing with a different type of humanitarian issue. And we can see that in that debate, both sides of that debate would have to recognise there's a, a wicked problem. I want to talk about the commodification of good intentions. What does this actually mean? So the commodification of good intentions. Well, first of all, commodification generically simply means something that otherwise doesn't have any economic value through the process of commodification now has economic value. So good intentions between two individuals, one person doing something for another person because it's a nice thing to do, right? Um, good intentions. The commodification of good intentions, the process of turning that good action into something of economic value where like, volunteerism is concerned, is that you now start to create systems where people will pay to do some good, right? So that you might pay um, an NGO to place you into a community development program where you might stay for six, eight weeks. And in that community development program, uh, you might uh, help out with a little bit of English language teaching, or you might work in a health clinic, or you might uh, help build a school or a library, or something of that nature. But the process has been commodified in a number of ways. First of all, you've paid to do it with your money and your time. Secondly, um, and perhaps more interestingly in some respects, it gets commodified by that now becoming something that goes onto your CV. Given that we're, you know, where volunteerism is concerned, we're talking about a, a you know, um, 18 to 26, 27, that we make up about 80% of the volunteerism market. 
there would be a range of reasons why somebody would do volunteerism, but undeniably one of them will be to put that on their CV. And that is in order to have a competitive advantage in the job market. When they go to, to be employed, the prospective employer will take at face value that, hey, you volunteered your time to go to Laos and um, help out with some kids. You must be a good person. And, it's, and it, it's, a, it's a signal to the prospective employer about the quality of the person you are. You've got the interview because it's on your CV, but in the job interview, it's really unlikely that the prospective employer will ask, was the project you worked on successful? Did the project you worked on cause any harm? Was the project uh, you worked on, you know, consistent with a, a range of other values? It will be simply the fact that it's on the CV. So it's commodified there. A lot of students do their volunteerism during summer break or semester breaks or things like that. Not every student can afford to do it. In my teaching experience, um, I have students come up to me for advice, you know, how do I get into the NGO sector? How do I get into a career um, in international development? And I'm really torn. On the one hand, I know that if you can get that experience on the ground, that at least make you competitive in the job market to do it. It's simple and self-evident almost. On the other hand, I also know that these programs where students are getting placed aren't necessarily doing good. And we can come to some evaluation of that in a minute if you like. But there's a bunch of other students who are asking for that same career advice. But during summer, they have to work their part-time job to pay for their education for the rest of the year. So when you've got these two students graduating, you've got the one who's been in an economic situation and been able to go and do those programs, and you've got another student who might academically be as good as, if not better than that student, but is not in an economic position themselves to do that volunteerism process. So there's all sorts of paradox and irony and what have you there but it really underlines the commodification that this now has an economic value. And you just touched on the idea of privilege. So mm. privilege in being able to engage in the commodity of good intentions or the commodification of good intentions. Yeah. How do you think that plays a part, privilege, in particularly engaging in the international development and volunteering sector? I think there's, there's a, a number of privileges at play. One of them is that, that economic privilege. You simply have the time and the money to be able to do it, right? And you can go and signal to the world that you're a good person by going and, and working somewhere that we generically recognise as poor or in need of some assistance. But the other privilege is a bit more conceptual and one that I think is really worth our consideration and, and that it's a real privilege to think of yourself as a solution and not a problem. Our world, the world that we live in here in Melbourne, is as consumerist as it gets, you know, anywhere in the world. And there's lots of great things about that, and I don't want to turn it into um, sort of like some sort of self-flagellation. But it is our society and our behaviours in a consumer-driven world that is, in fact, the cause of so many of the problems that the world faces, whether they be resource management and environment or whether they be back to the wealth distribution that we were talking about, or what have you. And so if we here in Melbourne turn our mind to doing good, and our first thought is to think of them over there, and that we are the solution to their problems by going over there and, and helping, then we've, we've missed an important opportunity to think of ourselves as the problem, not the solution. It's almost a self-imposed blind spot, you know, without that criticism of ourselves and our own behaviour, you know, how do we then jump into thinking of ourselves as a solution? An example I use in the classroom a bit, you know, and again, this might even tie it back to the idea of the wicked problem. So say in the undergraduate programs where most of the students are 18 to 22, even if they come from comfortable families, you know, economically, they're students, right? So they're working a part-time job in hospitality or, or retail or something like that. 
And so we do a little exercise when we're talking about things like fast fashion. We'll draw their attention to the fact that, you know, you don't have hundreds and hundreds of dollars to spend on clothes and, and what have you through the year. So you're looking for bargains. So if you can get a $10 t-shirt instead of a $50 t-shirt, you're going to go with a $10 t-shirt, aren't you? You're a student. Of course you are. And no one's going to worry about that. But then you put the question to the student, how does the t-shirt get on your back for $10? Well, somebody somewhere is going to be beginning being paid two bucks a day, right? So the student here in Melbourne, they're cash strapped. They want to turn up to university campuses or their jobs. They want to be clean and tidy and look good and also signal a bit of personality and whatever. So they want their t-shirts, they want their jeans or whatever. But in order to do that, they have to rely on a fast fashion industry to keep those prices low so they can access it. And that fast fashion industry exploits, especially kids and women. Something you spoke about very briefly before was the concept of the other. Mm. I want to talk about othering a little bit more and, and what that means uh, in, in practice, because from my understanding, it's often a very unconscious thing. And yeah. when you point it out, a lot of people are, are very confronted by that and you know you get various responses to that but i'd be really interested to know your work around othering well when i find myself in teaching courses in international studies or in national development almost by definition you're talking about the other all the time it's always them there you know so it's somebody else who's not in the room and it's somewhere else that's not melbourne and not even australia so we're setting aside, you know, the, the issues we have with Indigenous welfare in Australia. So we even look past our own borders um, and the third world conditions that many Australians live in. And so the other in these terms is the rest of the world, especially those people who aren't like us. Different colour skin, different religions and living in different cultures and societies. When we're in conversations in, in an educational setting about world affairs. It's almost unconscious the way that we talk about the other, but it has a huge impact on how we then start to process what's going on with the world and, and how we might engage with it. And I mean, I would assume that everyone all over the world practices othering unconsciously, no matter what background or country you are in, yeah. when does othering become dangerous? I think if there was an evolutionary psychologist in the room, what they would say is that it's, it's perfectly normal to other, right? Because evolutionarily, we get our security from being around people that are familiar with us, but to us, you know, people who look the same, behave the same, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, it makes sense that we don't see everybody as the same as us. But does it create dangers? Well, it creates dangers because we're not careful when we're othering, you know, the process of identifying the other, we can actually start to do things that have quite negative consequences. So if we speak of asylum seekers as cue jumpers, just simply as them, we can start to ultimately, uh, you know, in extreme, start to dehumanise them altogether. They're not just other humans, they're not us, you know, and therefore they're of a different value. So the, the mother and father and child in the detention centre is somehow different to a mother, father, two mums, two dads, uh, whatever definition of the family there is, that family is somehow of different value just because they happen to be here in Melbourne. And um, you set up these compares and contrasts and, and that's when it becomes dangerous. And I think it, you just said some words that I think are really important there. They become of different value. And I think when you confront people with this idea that perhaps thinking in this way might mean that you are unconsciously placing a different value on these people because of these things, that's when it becomes quite confronting. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and that's that's a wicked problem because resources are finite, even our personal energy levels are finite. If you come home from a long day and you decide to spend your evening with trashy television or something, instead of, you know, going out and working in a soup kitchen or something, you're not a bad person for sitting in front of the telly because your your energy levels are depleted. And but because you're watching telly doesn't mean you don't think the homeless who could do with uh, and the, and the organisations that support them with the soup kitchen. It's not because you think they're of less value. You literally don't have the individual capacity to do it. I would then say that's where you have a point of departure to think about the system, the world. You know, because individuals, depending on your theory of change, individuals are really important, and we look to leadership, and we look to inspirational heroes, and so on. But um, we're talking about things like migration and war and environment. It's not going to be individuals that's going to fix that anytime soon. So let's talk about heroes in international development. What are your thoughts on this concept of heroes or hero worshipping? Maybe a good starting point is celebrities. Celebrities are often the face of these very big issues. The United Nations has ambassadors for everything you can think of. You know, there's the United Nations ambassador to slavery. There's the United Nations ambassador to environment protection. There's the United Nations ambassador HIV AIDS, you know, and so on and so forth. And those ambassadors are, they're taking a bit of poetic license with this word ambassador, but they're celebrities, you know. So Angelina Jolie's in there, you know, Madonna's in there, and the list goes on and on. And I think what we're being told is that the only way, you know, most of us are ever going to pay any attention to these issues is if it's being talked to us through the voice of celebrities. And therefore, they become the heroes. Right, so if Madonna gets a photo taken carrying three or four little black kids in Malawi, Madonna becomes the hero. And the risk is that draws um, attention away from, first of all, the cause of those, those kids in Malawi needing attention from somebody like Madonna. Um, but it also draws away potential critique from, is Madonna the right person to be doing this? And so we do, we do, we, our society, the commodification, the consumerism, we like heroes, um, we like celebrities. Yeah, Yeah, and I think, you know, the, that also sends a very clear message to people consuming those pictures and, and that media that this is the right way to help, which links right back in with the commodification of good intentions through volunteerism projects. That's right. Uh, you know, so people have behaviours modelled to them, whether it's a, a young child looking to their parents to model behaviour or whether it's students and their teachers, where the teachers are modelling behaviour or whether it's, quote-unquote, general public having behaviour modelled to us by, you know, whoever we choose to idolise or, or hero worship. And they become our, our reference points. And, and often the work that celebrities and uh, you know public identities do needs to be sexy so that it gets attention right that's the whole point you know of of the un getting angelina jolie to do something is because if they know it will get attention whereas they got some you know monotone spokesperson who's actually a pretty amazing at understanding problem identification general public can turn off you know, they're just not engaging or they can't communicate. What do you think media's role in all of this is or should be? We know what it is now, but what responsibility does media have to ensure that they're not perpetuating, you know, and I'll use the example of orphanage volunteerism because it's, right. a, it's one of the best examples of this. What responsibility do they have not to perpetuate this? Look, they've got a huge responsibility and look, I know I'm not alone in thinking the media is, you know, a big part of the explanation for where, why we're in the situation we're in. They've got a huge responsibility. It's conventionally known, academics and, you know, I find myself in class saying, you know, let's understand them as a civil society actor. In other words, that they're not the state and they're not the marketplace and that the media we um, have understood over time 
central role is to hold government to account, is to make sure that the media is exposing what governments are doing and communicating that to the electorate. And then we can apply that conceptually to any issue, you know, so it's the media's role to inform us on what's going on around the world and, and what the issue are and what the debates are and, and how we might engage with them. The media's, it's really hard to argue that most of the media is civil society anymore. The media is, but for all intents and purposes, the market. And, um, and with social media, we're increasingly the product. <laughs> you know, the collection of data and the media, you know, what is the responsibility of the media? We would, I'd love to be able to say that the media would see their responsibility as asking, you know, Madonna, why do you think this is the best way to deal with this problem? Instead, what the media does is they go take a lot of photos and then they do a profile piece on Madonna and, and um, uh, just so happens that that's coming around the same time as a film release or, or something like that. And if we did a word count on all the attention to her activities, most of it will be to her and it won't be the kids or the circumstances those kids are in. I find that quite interesting and slightly off topic, but this idea of celebrities being ambassadors, you know, it makes you wonder what conclusions they've formed about these issues in order for them to agree to become an ambassador and what information have they consumed to form these conclusions? Or is it simply a... Uh, a case of, yes, I have good intentions, yes, I feel connected and emotive towards this issue, and so therefore I'm going to do it and I'm going to listen to what this one person or organisation says. Yeah, yeah. Look, that probably promised me to get a bit philosophical. You know, David Hume, if I could refer to David Hume, he's a Scottish philosopher from the 18th century, and one of the reasons I really like thinking about David Hume in the relation to the sorts of things we're talking about, is that he was really sympathetic to um, the role of feelings in our behaviours. He was part of, um, you know, the, the extension of the Enlightenment, you know, so he was all on board for the scientific method and, and reason and rationality. But one of the cool things about David Hume was that he said we can't ignore emotion. So. He would say something along the lines of, look, if you feel this is the right thing to do, that's great, but now can we link that to reason and rationality for why you would do it? You know, he had a great phrase, he said, um, reason is the slave of passion. So passion is so dominant. And if you, if, if you really want to do some good, you know, you're not going to let anything get in the way of doing what you think is a good thing to do right and I think that's what's going on so I don't I don't feel obliged to be overly cynical about celebrities I think for the most part they probably do think that they're doing good they do want to do good yeah. sure somebody's in their ear going there might be some tax benefit or some public profile benefit but I suspect you know there's no reason why a Hollywood movie star can't be a good person and I think Link that to the media. The media would have a role in educating us. Education is not just in ivory towers and institutions. So keeping us across the information that's involved. And if media is so interested in celebrities, then holding celebrities to account to explain themselves, explain their feeling, yeah. but explain their reasoning as well. I'm really interested in understanding more about the emotion side of things. And to do that, I want to go back on to philosophy. So if we can go back much further than David Hume and talk about Plato uh, and his tripartite soul or the three parts of the soul and his three elements of the psyche or the soul are appetite which is our desires for pleasure, comfort, physical satisfaction, and so on. He also talks about spirit, which is our emotion, the part that gets angry or moved when there's injustice done or we witness injustice done. And then there's the mind or reason, which is our conscious awareness and the part of us that 
is able to reason. So we can think and look ahead and analyze and weigh things up. And Plato would say that you're not truly in balance unless reason is in charge. But he doesn't say that at the expense of not considering appetite or spirit. And he uses the analogy of a chariot where reason is the charioteer and is driving and spirit and appetite are the two horses. And if they are not in balance and all working together in synergy, then we as humans are imbalanced. Kind of linking that back to this idea that you're presenting before about how emotion drives a lot of decision making around engagement in good intentions. It makes me kind of wonder this idea of spirit being in charge without any time or effort put into reason and understanding of these issues. Yeah, the question of balance makes a lot of sense, you know, so I love bringing in the, um, the idea of the, you know, the philosophers, these, <laughs> these big ideas. I, I think whether it's Hume or whether it's Plato, the idea of balance does a number of things. First of all, it doesn't treat anything as a silver bullet or as anything as the one way of life or as anything as the um, single answer to how one should behave or move through the world. I think that's, that's really crucial. The other thing is that if we're conscious that there's all these different ways of balancing ourselves, whether that be a combination of reason and emotion or how you've outlined Plato's thinking, it means that we're constantly weighing up opportunity cost. And if we were to extend that philosophically, we get to utilitarianism yes. and the question of value, you know, and we recognise that um, if, we're, if, we're, if we're subscribers to utilitarianism, we want the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, and that's a question of balancing as well, isn't it? Because it's immediately recognising that not everybody is going to have the same benefit or the same um, value for everything that's available. And if we're making policies, if we're designing programs, we're recognising the wicked problem, we can capture all of that in some way. Yeah, and I think bringing in utilitarianism is that modern philosophy, a more modern philosophy, written a lot about uh, by Peter Singer, who applies this specifically to the idea of doing good. And, you know, I think there's a lot of tension and have, in fact, talked to Peter about this tension myself about the loss of emotion in decision making around applying a utilitarian framework. And for me, there's quite a deep discomfort with that, even though I logically agree with utilitarianism, mm -hmm. it's very hard to see how emotion can't play a part because we are driven by emotion. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one confronted by it because my logic brain can go, yeah, that all makes perfect sense. Yep, the most good for the most number. Then if you try and live your life by that ethos, it's not always comfortable. You know, Peter Singer is involved with an organisation uh, with, with the effective altruism movement. And effective altruism draws in concepts of morals and ethics and um, utilitarianism. And it, it's trying to look at how you can do the most good with the resources available. And the logical conclusion with a lot of their work is, you know, um, identifying that uh, the single best way to spend your money on charity if your objective is to um, save human lives, is to support mosquito nets yes. and malaria, right? Now, supporting mosquito nets is to, um, to protect kids from malaria is great. It's proven the science, the reason, the logic is there. But, and this is why it's a tricky conversation, but people will still donate to... Um, Movember, you know, for men and um, prostate cancer, isn't it, I think, uh, with Movember or, or their um, cervical and breast cancer um, fundraising program. All crucial, if any one of us has had any family member or loved one dealing with one of those cancers, it's traumatic. But utilitarianism, if we, if we apply reason without the feeling, would suggest, no, instead of putting the 20 bucks towards breast cancer uh, foundation, I should spend 20 bucks and save 
you know, 10 times as many lives. Not comfortable, is it? No, it's not. And I think the effective altruism movement in particular looks at the science and the impact. So what are the outcomes and what is the impact of this intervention? And analyzes and makes decisions around that. And this leads me to circle right back to the start uh, and talking about volunteerism and the commodification of good intentions. And there's very little measurement of impact in this space. What have you discovered through your work on this? Yeah, look, that's right. Impact is sinfully overlooked, you know, because, because if the science, if we did do project evaluation on volunteerism projects, we probably wouldn't like the answers or the results because volunteerism story is about helping the other when overtly it's not really doing that. Certainly not in any um, notion of change agency. The activity of volunteerism helps the volunteerist and the volunteerism organisation through some of that commodification we spoke of before. I'll just quick aside, and I think Lee, you may have heard me say this in the past, you know, there's some discourse analysis around volunteerists and when volunteerists are asked before they go on their project, why are they doing it? And they say things like, um, because I'm privileged and I want to give back, right? When these volunteerists are interviewed after their volunteerism experience and asked the same question, you know, why did you do it and what are the, what are the consequences? They say, I'm a much better person. Right, and so it's just completely flipped. I think that that betrays what is actually going on with volunteerism on that level. I talk to students about that in an allied way, uh, often in like a week one or week two exercise in international development. We'll, we'll do a thing of who do you identify as a humanitarian? Who do you identify as an international development practitioner? And week one, week two of the semester, it's not surprising that you know people will will have in their mind they'll describe something like an aid worker in a four-wheel drive in rural or regional Africa or, or Asia or something like this. And that's perfectly understandable because that's I get back to the media, that's how it's often portrayed. But then I usually put up a couple of slides in front of the students, and it's usually of people they don't recognise by face, but who are very, very rich and powerful people. Um, you know, they might be CEOs of banks or other commercial organisations. And those people will be earning their CEO money, but they'll also be sitting on the board of NGOs. And so they get to be called philanthropists, still get their income from their, their CEO job, and they get to decide what causes are worthy of their money. In the meantime, the people that the general public identify as international development practitioners are earning a relative pittance, step one, have relatively little influence on which issues get addressed. You know, is it malaria or is it eyesight? Is it, you know, water cleanliness? Is it environment? Whatever. And so there's this real discrepancy between even how these these things are decided and acted upon. Yeah, yeah, it really does kind of highlight the inequities that um, exist around doing good, you know, yeah. having the power yeah. to influence how your money is spent philanthropically, even if you're not delivering those projects or you don't have the technical expertise to decide whether those projects are wanted, needed, and so on. Yeah, it's fascinating. I want to go back to you. How has your concept of doing good evolved over time? It's evolved a lot. There are some core principles that haven't changed. For better or worse, I was raised in a Catholic family. Um, I'm no longer Catholic or religious at all, but I can't ignore that I think some of my early value systems um, come from that. And it's the simplest thing like treat others how you'd like to be treated. Just start with something like that. So, so if I translate that into adulthood and I, I see somebody worse off than me, whether that be my neighbourhood or somewhere around the world, my thoughts are how would I feel like if I were them and what would I like the rest of the world to be doing about it? There's that kind of framing. That hasn't changed so much. 
my relationship to the problem is what's changed the most, I think. So I was guilty as anybody of thinking that just because I was privileged, just because I was from Australia, just because I'm a white heterosexual male and all of those identity criteria, um, that, you know, I won the lottery. So therefore, I should do something with that. And I carried that for a long, long time. Now I've moved more towards thinking about, you know, what's the appropriate way to deal with that. Doing good now is often less about some kind of action towards somebody else, although it's still part of it, and more about trying to work out where I best fit. If we want to draw on the, um, on the philosophers again, let's go to Aristotle. And he had a great quote along these lines. He said, uh, I'm sure I'm paraphrasing, where the needs of the world and your talents meet, that's where you belong. We can say, here's this problem, we can identify that, so step one, tick. Step two, now don't immediately think that just because there's a problem, I can solve it. Unless my talents are directly related, and talents here might be a skill, it might be knowledge, it might be resources, or whatever it is. Me doing good is now me constantly trying to find where the needs of the world and my particular talents meet. And the closer and closer I get to finding what that is, the more good I think I'm doing. Certainly the less harm I'm doing. That's a good point. And what fascinating and interesting talents you have. So who is or has been your greatest influence in the practice of, of doing good? Well, like any good teenager, I um, looked at, you know, the, the immediate pop culture around me. So in my teenage years, I went to music. Music was my thing. And lucky for me or not, music, certainly when I was getting into it, and certainly the types of music I was getting into, was very political. I was, you know, good old-fashioned punk pub rock and punk was very political you know at the time even before i knew what the words meant i think i was listening to punk and it was all about change and agitation and not being happy with the world and a little bit of angst and i think that that morphed into okay hang on what are these bands singing about talking about you know so dead kennedys and talking about holiday in cambodia and sex pistols and the clash and and all of that um, 70s stuff and i think you know, and this is the life cycle, I think. So that's just pop culture, that's mucking around with mates, drinking too much, having a good time, but starting to get exposed to political philosophy via music. And then coming out of that, I would then start reading more, I'd start exposing myself to more, I'd start to, you know, birds of a feather flock together, started hanging around with people. And a lot of my moral and ethical education just came from from that. It then ultimately translated into more formal education, and I'm I'm now just stupidly overqualified. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saturated. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. There's a couple of candidates as an answer for that. I. I'm sure it's probably the environment and everything that hangs off the environment, you know, so um, our, our treatment of natural resources, I think, is going to embarrass us in the future. I would nominate that one. I'd point to things like the way we distribute, you know, wealth and resources and how we organise the world as an issue, and so we could argue whether how do we organise the world? Is that, is that what's causing the, the issues with climate and environment and resource management, or is it the other way around? Not sure, but probably ultimately um, environment. Because it, despite what our media would often portray it as, it's not a, just about the weather. It's about health and welfare. I know you do a bunch of work in the Pacific, and the Pacific is dealing with climate on a day-by-day -day basis, the climate change on a day-by-day -day basis. And climate has impact on food production, and therefore we've got nutrition issues around the world. Um, the climate has issues on health, whether that be air quality and, and things like this. 
you know, and air quality is an issue of industrialization and, and what have you. So we could argue against the system and not the environment that we should pay attention to. But it's something in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, for those of you wondering where that question comes from, it was put forward by a philosopher called Kwame Apaya. So there's a lot of work done around that. And I just think it's a really interesting question to ask and to reflect on. What do you think the solution is? And I know that's a massive question. Yeah. Yeah, I, I pause because I, I think the language is so loaded here, but I, I think it's something to do with the re-engineering of values, both economic values and philosophical values. I would love our value system to be, our economic value system to be more organised around quality than quantity, for example. You know, what would make it possible for a, uh, a student on a student's budget to avoid buying a $10 t-shirt? Well, one of the reasons they want a $10 t-shirt is because they want five different t-shirts to wear, right? With all different things. You know, why not spend more money on fewer t-shirts? Might be the idea. So there's a value system in play over having as many things as we want. That probably needs some energy. And then the value system, the philosophical version of values goes back to this idea of utilitarianism perhaps, or or value around um, um, human worth. You know, what does it mean to be human? Another standard question that I am asking all my guests is if you could tell the world something and know that every person would hear it, what would it be? <laughs> my uh, BSB and bank account number? <laughs> uh, no, well, what, <laughs> what would be? See, I'm just as greedy as anyone. Why don't I just be picky and just say, why don't we all just have a little bit more good faith towards each other, a little bit more respect, assume the best out of us all rather than the worst out of us all, and just try that and see what happens. Yep, yep, perfect. Tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now. I think probably the people who are who really are the heroes are, are often people we don't see. There are people doing amazing work on disease eradication, are doing amazing work on disability services. And although, you know, these aren't names that uh, people have coming into their lounge rooms on the nightly news, they're doing great. Yeah, yeah. And look, I think it's really telling, given our conversation earlier about the the hero worshipping, that you can't come up with somebody that's well known. Oh, yeah. yeah, because I I, I I am super. Look, I'm, I reckon I could do a bit of a roll call of people that we would all know that are in the public eye that are ambassadors for X Y Z. But I'm really reluctant to name them because I'm not convinced that they are. In some total in some total i'm not convinced they are doing good yeah no i love it i love it where's your favorite place on earth i've got a couple of answers to that one one i used to travel so much for work right travel a lot which you would think therefore i've got a lot of places to choose from and i'm lucky and happy to say that i do but there was never anything quite like the feeling of um landing at melbourne airport and um, wherever I had just returned from. So I think just because my connection to that feeling, I'd, I'd have to say Melbourne um, is home. I could spend all day telling you about things I don't like about it or how I wish I could run for the hills at times. But if it boils down to a feeling, it would, it would be Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. And what book are you reading or podcast are you listening to at the moment? Yeah, right. Well, I've just picked up a book called The Last Man in, in Europe. And um, it's, um, I'm just getting underway, but it was pointed towards me. And it's a fictionalised account of, of George Orwell's writing of 1984. And I'm looking forward to getting into that. Now, I can't really speak too much about it because I really just picked it up. But my favourite book of the year was one that I just finished a couple of weeks ago um, called Axiomatic. It is a collection of stories written by an Australian author whose name for the life of me 
escapes me right now, axiomatic, and it tells just tremendous stories about how people deal with family relationships and trauma and not, not the cheeriest of topics, but it's a set of stories that are just so human. And so if we were to return it to, you know, what are the big issues facing our time? It's, it's what does it mean to be human? Because um, we, we have on our horizon issues of artificial intelligence, you know, if we could probably be on the scope of our conversation. But I think things like artificial intelligence are going to where we are going to be, where we bump into the question of what it means to be human uh, in the future. Um, but I would encourage anyone to look out for Axiomatic. I think it, it's an Australian author, but just um, saw during the week that it was put on the New Yorker's best books of um, Podcast-wise, I'm a podcast junkie. Um, so it's very mood-based in terms of what, I, what I'm listening to. I'm a sucker for a lot of the podcasts that deal with, you know, that are conversational in nature. There's a podcast called um, Recode Decode, which is looking at how technology is influencing the way we live our lives and understand the world. And I'm increasingly interested in how everything is mediated through technology. You know, previously we would think of our relationship with the world mediated through the television. And of course, that still has something going on. But um, with social media and its ubiquity and, and the issues it's having on our human relationships. And I, I love two philosophical uh, podcasts. One called Very Bad Wizards, which is two blokes. One's a psychologist and one's a philosopher. They have a great banter. You know, it's uh, very irreverent. But listening to them talk through the world's issues from a psychological point of view and from a philosophical point of view. Um, is wonderful. They'll, they'll do something as random as um, talk about um, uh, the philosophy of the Big Lebowski <laughs> um, as readily as they'll talk about, you know, what it means to live a good life by, you know, David Hume and, and Aristotle and Plato and the like. And another one called The Partially Examined Life, yeah. which is obviously a, a, a variation on the quote that the only life worth living is an examined life. Hmm. Excellent. Well, I'll add all of those to the show notes. Um, it has been excellent talking to you. I could talk to you for hours. And in fact, I think I might get you back on. There's some of the concepts that you work on, particularly colonialism in the international development sector. I think we could devote a whole podcast episode to that alone. But it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. It's been wonderful, Leo. The time has flown and geez, we covered some ground. I wonder if we, uh, as you say, I feel like we just barely scratched the surface. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm going to finish off with a quote from something you wrote. And it is, should we who have the social, political, cultural and economic resources to help do so with equal or differential attention to the causes of poverty or the consequences of it. Perhaps most confronting, what if, in some way, the privileged lives we collectively lead contribute to the causes of poverty? Quite a wicked problem in itself. Yeah, causes and consequences. It's a great binary to play with. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.